Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and this is New Books in Latin American Studies. Today, I'm speaking to Kevin O'Neill about his new book, Secure the Soul, Christian Piety and Gang Prevention in Guatemala, just out with University of California Press. As the subtitle suggests, O'Neill's book is an ethnography of the profound and often surprising connections between notions of Christian piety and multi-million dollar programs aimed at state security through gang prevention. O'Neill takes us into unexpected sites and venues, including call centers and reality television, and conveys in searing detail the often unsettling ways in which programs informed by notions of Christian piety aim to convert and transform former gang members in Guatemala City. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Your book is a really fascinating and often harrowing ethnography of post-war Guatemala and the role of what you call Christian piety. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be an, an, an anthropologist and when you knew this was going to be the subject of your next book? Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, in terms of how I became an anthropologist, you know, I have about 12 different stories about how I ended up being an anthropologist. What, what I think I'll go with right now is that uh, I was for a long time a student of philosophy and theology, particularly of, of Latin American uh, liberation philosophy as an undergraduate and then as a master's student. And I had actually, I hadn't even taken an anthropology course up until I think it was my second year of a master's program. But when I did, it was, it was a seminar on language and culture. I, I found this real, really exciting window onto both politics and active fieldwork and theoretical concerns. Um, and so while I've had a kind of a longstanding interest in questions of religion, um, anthropology allowed me to, to explore that in really empirical ways. Um, so, I mean, ultimately what that did was it, it, can, it motivated me to apply to anthropology programs and, and immediately get kind of um, – linked up with, with questions of religion and politics, mostly in Latin America, because I'd done a, uh, a bunch of um, community organizing and, and traveling in Mexico like during the late 90s and the conflict zones of Chiapas, a lot of um, human rights advocacy. So the, the anthropology seemed to be like this natural connection between some of my political interests uh, and theoretical concerns uh, and, and intellectual projects. So I that's how I kind of ended up as an anthropologist. And what about this particular project? Oh, yeah. I mean, this project – so I actually wanted this. This is my second book. What I, I actually wanted this to be my first book. So when I, when I was uh, – I mean, basically, I, I came to graduate school think, to my PhD program thinking that I would do work on religion and politics, but maybe in Mexico, maybe in the United States with undocumented uh, immigrant communities. But then uh, – I had an advisor who suggested that if you're really into religion and politics, you should you should go to Guatemala. And I, I already been several times for for different research projects, and I, I visited it and mostly stayed in the capital city, which is a uh, for now. Now this has kind of changed in, in recent 
years, but for a long time, Guatemala has been a place of anthropological research, uh, but mostly outside of the capital city. There hadn't been a ton of work done in the capital, and when I arrived in Guatemala City, I found myself completely excited and connected to the capital, thinking that there were just, and I really think so today, just continually endless projects um, that excite me in the capital city. So, uh, I, I was torn between these two kind of book projects. One about the rise of neo-Pentecostal megachurches in post-war Guatemala and their impact on the formation of citizenship. Now, that, that would eventually form my dissertation and my first book called City of God. But during that, especially during the later kind of the almost two years that I spent doing fieldwork for that first book, what emerged quickly was that it wasn't just democratization and citizenship that was defining much of Guatemala, especially the capital, but questions of security and gang violence. And I remember there was this really important point before my first kind of long stay of almost two years for fieldwork where I was kind of pivoting between this first project on mega churches and this other project on uh, Christian interventions and in gang life. And I just felt like <clears> – <throat> The, the, the megachurch project would ground me in kind of the Christian landscape of the country and allow me to, to engage um, the gang prevention security project better once I finished the first one. Um, so th this, this book, Secure the Soul, has been in, in the work since the very, very beginning of my research, uh, but I only really had time to turn to it during the second year of that first long stay. It's interesting that it's the other half of the first project, and I can see now how those two fit together really well. Yeah, very much. I mean, I consider the two. I, I also have this one advisor, you know, she was like, uh, you know, you could either write one gigantic book, <laughs> or you could kind of follow through with some of these, these questions in a second book. Because the first book is really about, um, City of God is really about how Guatemalans imagine themselves as citizens and practice their citizenship through Christianity. How do they become uh, better and more um, kind of connected to the to the nation. And the second book, Secure the Soul, is, is really about the dark underside of citizenship, which is delinquency. And how do Christians wrestle with people who uh, who prove themselves either not be able to be better or um, who don't want to be better? Uh, and in, within the Guatemalan context, that's that's largely that's largely um, that questions related to, to questions of gangs. Yeah. So Mateo. Yes. The book centers on him, and it's also about much more than him. Right. Um, who was he, and how did you meet him? Or who is he? Yeah, no, who is, no, who is he, right? Um, he, it's, I, I think about this a lot. I mean, so Mateo, the, the guy I call Mateo, um, there's a larger kind of theoretical conversation that we could have about, you know, does the person that I call Mateo and Mateo, the character in the book, are they the same person? Um, I'll, I'll stick with kind of the person I call with Mateo at this moment. Uh, Mateo is a someone who was born in Guatemala, so he he reflects a, a larger kind of story. Uh, he was born in Guatemala during the Civil War, and his him and his father left for the United States, and they. When when Moon Mateo was was about three years old, and they they moved to Los Angeles and and had a, a predictably difficult time settling in. And this is this is Los Angeles in in the eighties and the nineties, where there's a rise in, in gang activity with Mexican, Asian, African American gangs, and what you see is the emergence of these uh, Central American 
gangs in Los Angeles, no, most notably MS, uh, Mara Salvatrucha and Barrio 18. These two major gangs emerge in, in Los Angeles among Central American immigrants. Um, and Mateo is a part of this history. Now, um, U.S. history tells us that you know, following the L.A. riots, there's a shift in deportation policy, and and Mateo got wrapped up into that also, and was sent back to Guatemala along with tens of thousands of other Central Americans uh, who were either convicted or at least accused of of gang activity. And so, what what Mateo is as a character in the book is a constant point of reference about the really local and intimate histories that are a part of this larger movement of. Um, of refugees from Central American wars that go to Los Angeles and then are then shipped back uh, by the thousands after uh, a shift in deportation policy in the United States. And what we see in Guatemala as well as in El Salvador and Honduras and a bit in Nicaragua is a rise in gang culture, what is largely L.A.-based gang culture, and the effects are tremendous in terms of violence. And I guess this touches on a, something that you mentioned just a moment ago, but you you say in the introduction, I think it is, that Mateo really is the argument of the book. Yes. Um, yeah. When did you realize that, and There's, how did you come to that to that formulation? Yeah, I mean, this this is a larger kind of ethnographic statement that I that I'm trying to make in the sense that there is a way in which, so I mean, the book is structured. There are um, five kind of classic ethnographic chapters, and in between are these interchapter moments where we follow. Uh, Mateo and learn more about him. And we can talk about Mateo's relationship to the chapters, but what I didn't want the reader, and, and the reader, of course, is open to interpret all this as he or she wants, but what I would not want the reader to do is something that Mateo kind of adds a, a sense of texture or color to to the book. But um, what Mateo is doing is articulating a fundamental argument uh, that the book is trying to advance, that the actual ethnography is the argument and not just evidence. Uh, and we can talk about how, but that, that larger argument is this question of, of being better, is this larger question of Christian piety, uh, which is fundamental to Christian theology, but it has also become a, a, a central component to Central American security. I want to talk about that, and I also want to talk about the organization of the book, which I found really compelling. But first, I wonder if we can back up a little bit and talk about the very close relationship and the powerful presence of Christian institutions in post-war Guatemala, sure. just as a background. Yes. I mean, what the, the one thing that is, is amazing, I mean, what's, what's extraordinary for me, but I actually continually uh, have to remind myself is that, you know, Guatemala was a, for for centuries, it was a long-standing Roman Catholic country, but up until 1976, really, uh, there up until 1976, there was this incredibly Roman Catholic country. But after that, following an earthquake on February 4th, 1976, we see a dramatic shift in religious affiliation, such that Guatemala is today, many reports, 60% Pentecostal or Charismatic Christian. Now, there's a very specific history to this, where the earthquake. Uh, ushered in or at least attracted U.S.-based Protestant aid agencies, and the Roman Catholic Church at the time did not believe itself to be an aid organization, and so a vacuum was created. There's tremendous and kind of definitive histories of, of how Guatemala became such a, uh, now a charismatic and Pentecostal Christian community, or at least nation. But um, what's central 
for me, intellectually, as I continue to work in Guatemala and think through this question of religion and politics, is that when we think about civil society, when we consider civil society in Central America, especially Guatemala, Christian organizations, meaning Pentecostal and charismatic organizations, are oftentimes the leading institutions and organizations that encourage citizenship participation or respond to things like gang violence. They, they are the, the defining institutions in, in a place like Guatemala. So that actually leads into the question of organization and uh, the way you chose to center the chapters on these different sites, which are in some ways, you wouldn't think you would find the church in a place like a reality TV show <laughs> right. or a rehab center or even a prison, um, but you do. And it's a really, uh, so I, w- I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about how you chose to organize it and um, and especially the interspersing of the interludes of the life with the bigger chapters about each of these specific, it's as if you're kind of wandering around the city and, and stopping in at each of these places. Yeah, it is, it is, it is a bit of a wandering. I mean, I, I, for me, I think, I think the organization is, is really important. I mean, there's one way you, you could take this kind of intersection of Christianity and gang prevention. I mean, there's this incredible book called Homies and Hermanos by this guy, Robert uh, Brenneman, who, and, and actually, you know, Robert ended his, or Bob ended his research just about as I began my research. And, and one of the things that I forgot to say earlier that kind of sparked this interest um, in this topic for me was that, not not just because Christians respond to things like gang violence, but because for a very kind of distinct window in, in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, uh, there was a moment where these two large gangs, uh, MS-13 and, and Barrio de Siocho, allo- allowed active members to leave their gangs if they converted to Christian if they converted to like Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity. It was this very strange window into an affiliation that is usually for life. Now Bob followed this, but by the time I got on the scene, that was long closed. But what happened was that there was a real rush afterwards of Christian aid organizations that kind of filled the vacuum. So what I quickly understood was that, you know, this isn't about necessarily converting people out of gang life. We you I did not see that. Over the eight years I did my research, I did not see that a great deal at all. Not, 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 not enough to form a book. Bob did, and, and the book is a real success. Um, but what I did see was a rising number of deported gang members <clears throat> and a growing kind of local gang population that found itself interacting with different kinds of prevention schemes, really, uh, that, that were very limited. Uh, and many of them many of them were explicitly self-presenting as Christian. For example, uh, chapter one in the book is about prison chaplains, and these prison chaplains enter maximum security prisons in, in Guatemala City and, and, and outside the capital also, but, and, and engage with active gang members, trying to, trying to convert them out or trying to, to convince them that, that gang life is not, is not great. But then there are other not so explicitly Christian, uh, but I think definitively pious programs to convert people out. So you mentioned chapter two engages this, this, I mean, there's another way to say it. It's like absurd uh, reality show, the scheme to get people out of gang life. They take these, uh, in Guatemala City, uh, in around roughly like 2005, 2006, USAID uh, funded a reality television program that took 10 former gang members uh, and tried to make them little mini entrepreneurs. Uh, they aired the shows. They they ran a classic reality television show, which involved these kind of confessional moments and this before and after makeovers. And I mean, beyond the fact that 
this kind of reality tele- television show was thought up or cooked up by self-professing Christian aid workers, the actual kind of mechanics of, for example, a reality television show has deep, deep connections to Christian kind of uh, imaginations of a before and after. So the, the makeover moment where the, the ex-gang member takes off his kind of uh, gang apparel like baggy pants and uh, and white t-shirt and then is suddenly in these like proper slacks and a button-down shirt that hides his tattoos is vi- connects deeply with missionary histories about wearing your Sunday best and, and dressing up for church and having your exterior reflect your interior. So what I try to do in the book as I move through these chapters is, of course, engage some of the explicit Christian moments where self-identifying Christians are engaging in Christian activity to help these gang members, but also thinking about the larger security apparatus, this rise of prevention and intervention, and the kind of Christian imperatives that it traffics in. So that's how how I've kind of organized the chapters in a way. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about each one of them because yeah. they are um they're so fascinating and they provide such interesting contrast but also these these very um compelling similarities. So prison. Yes. Uh the the description of the prison is really tragic in a lot of ways and and hard to read for me anyway. Yeah. Um it seems like one of the most unlikely places to find pastors and particularly respected pastors, right? You, I, I get the sense reading it that they actually have some legitimacy in the work that they do there. And as you pointed out, it seems like everyone else has abandoned those spaces except for the pastors. Yes. I mean, what is, what's interesting, I mean, I'll be in Guatemala in two weeks to, to complete a, a report that me and two colleagues are, are completing on on uh, drugs and the prison system in Guatemala. And what, you know, I continue to find as I continue to engage the prison system in Guatemala is a complete lack of access to rehabilitation services or any kind of therapies whatsoever. These, these prisoners have, have certainly been abandoned and, and this whole entire system is now, you know, uh, working at 270% capacity. One of the prisons that I reference in the book is at 570% capacity. I mean, these are, these are extreme situations and pastors are one of the most consistent, uh, resources for these prisoners, uh, hands down, um, you know the, the 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 entire system has about twenty one different st- entire prison system has twenty one different prison structures and has I think seventeen psychologists on staff. I mean for for eighteen thousand prisoners, it's it's a um, it's a dire situation. But when you have a steady flow of charismatic and Pentecostal pastors entering the prison system, most of them not even registered with the state. They just come in on visitation days, totally voluntary, and working with with these uh, these prisoners, it, it's it is the lifeline uh, for these prisoners. Absolutely. The, the TV show and the call center, you could read those together. Yeah. Chapter, chapter two is about the TV show. Chapter three is about the call center. And um, you can read them both as kind of efforts to instill discipline through clothing and consumption and behavior and links to capitalism, especially right. To make good workers. And it's really interesting the way that capitalism aligns with piety Right. right. And it seems to me that what you're arguing in part is that Christianity is not necessarily a set of theological beliefs or not only a set of theological beliefs, but also a set of embodied practices. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a semiotics to to converting that, that, again, this dynamic between how one presents oneself on the exterior is supposed to reflect what is existing on the interior. I mean, one of the most kind of challenging one of, one of the most challenging predicaments of, for example, gang prevention, which is about really uh, what has become in Guatemala about connecting with individuals is not only trying to connect, which is this really amorphous kind of um, task, but also to uh, establish some kind of metric for connecting. I mean, th- these are programs that are usually funded and want some sort of metric or response. So how do we know that people have changed. I mean, this is a classic, I, I refer to Augustine a great deal throughout my work, but um, and this is a classic Christian predicament of, so change is extremely important, change for the better, before and after, but how does one actually document that? And and in chapter three, like you're referencing, um, one, of the mo- one, one of the most important kind of rising industries in Central America are bilingual call centers. Not, not many people might know this, but uh, it's, it's called nearshoring, and that's when uh, an organization, I mean, like Coca-Cola or UPS or uh, Norwegian Cruise Line, when they want back office support, they'll go to the Philippines and India, but they'll also pay a little more for Central America because the time schedule is usually in line with North America, but also because Central Americans usually have a great affiliation with North American culture, so it's actually easier, better service in some ways. And... These call centers have been hiring by leaps and bounds, uh, deported, oftentimes gang members from the United States because their English is excellent, their cultural um, command of U- their command of U.S. culture is great, uh, and also the visuality of call center work is 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 none. I, as long as your accent's on point, it doesn't matter if you have tattoos on your neck or your face, or it's it's not important. Um, so uh, a number of institutions, along with the call centers themselves, have been trying and continue to recruit <clears throat> gang member deported uh, gang members to work in call centers, and it's become this this kind of life raft uh, because it provides a really solid middle class salary to people who could otherwise not enter the formal economy in Central America. <clears throat> There's this great uh, image in your book of the people who run the call centers just hanging out at the airport. Yeah, waiting for people to get off the plane. Ugh, it's yeah, it's tough. I mean, so there, there are two. Usually, there are two repatri- repatriation flights every single day entering Guatemala City. Thirty thousand uh, people return to Guatemala. They're so deported back to Guatemala every single year. So <clears throat> there's a there's usually two flights, and many and because of the geographical placement of the airport and the high rises that <clears throat> excuse me that that house the call centers. They're, they're quite close to each other. <clears throat> they're, they're quite close to each other, and uh, in terms of recruitment, uh, the call centers have just taken to showing up at the tarmac and waiting for the deportees and seeing how many of them um, are potential recruits. And in some ways, you know, that that's like really, I mean, kind of in, in my most cynical moments, like, man, that is so predatorial. That's it. But in fact, these guys get off the plane. Um, like, if you think about Mateo, the central character, he got off the plane. He left Guatemala when he was three years old. His Spanish was terrible when he landed in Guatemala City. He went straight to um, his cousins outside of the capital. He grew up in L.A. He had no idea about non-urban living, let alone in Guatemala, let alone in Spanish. Let, uh, and so while it is quite predatorial in this kind of neoliberal capitalistic moment of, like – just 
just like trolling tarmacs for talent, uh, those who do meet the qualifications are super happy to engage. It is a real opportunity for many. Yeah, it's a it's a situation that's rife with irony somehow. Oh, absolutely. It seems to work on so many different levels. Well, yeah, because you know, so the the call center oftentimes asks these deported uh, guys to pretend that they live in the United States, and so you know, here's a country that had no use for, for example, Mateo until they deported Mateo back to Guatemala and asked him to pretend he lives in Nashville to service you know the clients of UPS. It's it's a it's a pretty in that sense it's a super rough story. So the the last the final two chapters contrast more programs that are more surprising to me. One is the sponsoring the program that's of sponsoring children right from afar and uh, in some instances help them. And then the final chapter is on the Pentecostal rehab programs in which former yeah. gang members get dragged in and held pretty much against their will and in what you describe as prison-like settings, right? So yeah. the language of conversion or transformation is really strong in the, in the people who create these programs. And what surprised me was the extent to which the targets of the programs, the people who are receiving the benefits or not of these programs also start to adopt this language of conversion and transformation. Yes. Did, did that surprise you as well? Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, so chapter four addresses or explores uh, a child sponsorship program, which many are probably fairly familiar with. If you, if you give, let's say $32 a month to support, uh, to contribute to the education and maybe the life of, of a young child somewhere else in the world, it's, super popular. Um, it's a huge industry. It's like a four or five billion dollar industry globally. Um, yeah, I mean, the question of, I mean, what I, what I think you're, you're kind of referencing is that, so ostensibly the child sponsorship program is to sponsor a child in an at-risk part of Guatemala City to keep them out of gang life. But in fact, it's not just the change in the sponsored child that the program really emphasizes, but also the change in the sponsor, in the sponsor him or herself. So I, I go back and forth between sponsors in North Carolina, middle class, professional, six figure kind of families that support these at risk children in Guatemala in, 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 in one of the most difficult parts of Guatemala City. Uh, it's a community at the bottom of a, of a barranco, which is a canyon. These canyons cut Guatemala City. They were part of the land grabs in the 1970s, 80s, during the capital's urbanization and become the roughest parts of the city, largely because they, they not only exist at the very bottom of these canyons, like 200 meters down, but also they're just kind of well beyond the reach of the state. The police never come down there. The, no, there's, the infrastructure is light. Um, so you have these uh, really well-intentioned North uh, North Carolinians who are sending the $32 a month to support at-risk children in these barrancos. And what they're doing, um, perhaps predictably, is trying to cultivate a greater sense of self also, also while trying to help the child. The, the difference between the children who do receive help and the ones who don't is pretty striking. Yeah, it is super striking. Um, yeah, it is super striking. Um, how to explain it? Uh, I, I talk about it through the language of, of, of segregation in the sense that, and, and, and research 
two, two things surprised me in terms of previous research on child sponsorship. One, there's, there's not a ton, uh, which is, I thought, completely surprising uh, in terms of ethnographic research on child sponsorship. The second is that the research that has been done quite rightly identifies the bright distinctions that, take, that, that form between those who are sponsored and those who are not. And those generally, for example, research that was done in the 90s, emphasized that one child would have more toys, another child have no toys, or one child would receive letters, another child would not receive letters. And that would disrupt community politics, which I think is a very real concern. And, and the child sponsorship industry knows this and has a, a long conversation about it and about the perils of it. Child sponsorship industry, I said, it was a, you know, it's a four or five billion dollar industry worldwide, has such momentum that it's able to kind of experiment at the margins to see like, what can it actually accomplish beyond just a development project or charity? And one of those things is security. And so while it takes tremendous gusto and a kind of uh, great sense of optimism to enter a community that is really ignored by the state, that has been left at the bottom of a barranco to kind of fend for itself and where gang culture has really taken over, while it takes great gusto to engage that, those distinctions that form become even brighter. So it's not just that one kid gets a letter and one kid doesn't, but that one kid really has an opportunity, quite possibly a possibility to cultivate themselves and get a job or to move forward, engage school, and the other not. And the consequences can be quite dire between that, the, the division between sponsored and not sponsored. Yeah, that was, that was very striking to me. And so in the, in, the, in the chapter on the rehab programs, it seems like it's, it's almost the opposite dynamic, right? Where these people who have really been abandoned or left behind, as you say, yeah. um, are being worked on in these kinds of ways that seem very problematic and um, not, yeah. not so effective in a lot of ways. But, but then there are some examples, and you, you give one in the book of, of, of um, that having some kind of an effect. And I was really interested in that the moment that the moments that you were able to find where the people actually started to believe all of these things or started to live in a way that reflected mm. the kinds of things that they were being told about getting out and right. leaving their habits behind and all those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, the fifth, the fifth chapter addresses the rise of, of these Pentecostal drug rehabilitation centers or just Pentecostal rehabilitation centers. And a lot of that has to relate their, their, their expansion has a lot to do with the rise of gang violence and drug culture in Guatemala City, but principally speaking, these are, these are uh, houses or former factories or, apartment, or abandoned apartment complexes that have been renovated uh, in the name of kind of a, a Christian theological style of rehabilitation. And, and so this is, this is very much about people being picked up and dragged into a house and kept there for oftentimes months on end. Um, this, is a, this is a genre of captivity that one can find in Mexico and Ecuador and Brazil. Uh, it's, a, it's a very strong uh, presence in Guatemala City. And what we see in this book, in my book, is that the centers, although they they – they are extreme violations of human rights. I have, a, I have a report that I wrote for the United Nations Commission on Human Rights and its Committee Against Torture about these centers. While they're incredible, incredible violations of human rights, uh, they're also important community resources that, that, that serve as kind of 
that, that, that allow families to warehouse their problematic child to figure out what to do so that he is off the streets. Um, and while they're inside the center, they become the subject of these of, of, of Christian logics that if you really want to exit, ever leave this center, you need to uh, be a proper Christian. And that means, and this returns to kind of the themes of chapters two and three or the reality television show and call center that one needs to um, properly perform uh, a pious subject subjectivity. One needs to sit up straight. One needs to engage in sermons. One needs to be a proper Christian. So uh, this kind of engagement in Christian piety, as I call it, is oftentimes a last resort of trying just to get out of these centers, just trying to convince the pastor and your family that, look, I've changed. Let me out of this uh, this holding cell, basically. I think that there's a tension. I want to talk about the tension in this book that I see is running throughout, really. And that's between your descriptions of some of these situations, which are really absurd and absurdist, right? Yes. And this, the, the reality TV show, especially, but a lot of these um, seem that way. But there's also uh, a kind of faith in people and, and a way of uh, giving people a chance who haven't had a chance before, or at least a recognition that in some ways the programs humanize former gang members as no one else is doing. Yeah. Right? And so you seem to walk this fine line between critiquing some aspects of these programs and also recognizing their effectiveness. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be, I often think about, you know, this, I, I completed this research over eight years. I, I, I think about whether, and constant, constant travel. Uh, so about a, a, a year straight um, and then three months a year. And I think about, you know, what if I just, did a, in a classic anthropological moment of just just doing a full year, just uh, and that's that's kind of the gold standard. You go somewhere for a year and, and never did kind of the continued work. Um, maybe I'd have a harsher critique and just kind of kick down the door and say like, "Look, this is you're locking up people in these old warehouses. You guys are um, going into these, these gang tanks in the prisons, and and you're just preaching at them. And this reality television show is is completely absurd, and these call centers are predatorial." Um, but I think what the, the longer engagement allowed me to see was that none of these are ideal. None of these interventions, and a lot of them are absolutely, I mean, like, the, the, the reality television show is probably the one that I'm, I am the most critical of in my heart because of the 10 original, I think seven have been murdered. And of the 10 original participants, I believe seven have been murdered uh, because of their, largely because of their affiliation with the program. It was just reckless kinds of interventions. But at the same time, it's hard to ignore the that a call center gives to a former gang member. It's, it's absolutely hard. It's, it's impossible to somehow erase those interviews and those uh, long engagements with people who find real dignity with, with even with these rehabs. I mean, I was just, I was just transcribing some tape this morning where this pastor makes this really great argument. He's like human rights. And I remember the conversation while also he's like human rights. What are those? Why? But, you know, what, what about the rights of, of the mother who um, who now can sleep at night because she knows her son is safe in this in this rehab and not roam in the streets and going to get killed? So I, it is a fine line between, between critiquing the logics that underlie prevention, gang prevention in Guatemala, while also appreciating that these are efforts at just making do, of, of trying – 
of trying to survive what is ultimately a perfect storm in post-war Guatemala with the rise of organized crime and a shift in the, in the transit of Andean cocaine that now most all of it goes through Central America as well as the rise of gang culture because of new deportation regimes in the United States. It's put Guatemala in an absolutely terrible position and, and what these efforts of intervention and these, these gang prevention programs represent in some ways is, is, is at some points an honest effort at, at, at helping people um, while at the same time having oftentimes horrific, horrific consequences. I think the fact that you don't shy away from that tension, that it remains central to the book, is, is one of the things that gives the book its power. Thanks. And I think, and I think also it, it connects, I mean, at the core, so, you know, if, if, if the listener is like, yeah, this book is everywhere, like it's at the rehab, it is at the prison, like it's, it, this is a bananas book. Um, the thing that is organizing this at, at the very foundation is the story of Matteo, but it's also, because Matteo is the argument, because the argument is that Christian pie is this continual effort, failed effort at trying to be better. It, it, it sits at this core of, of, of a Christian worldview where uh, sin places the human being, this is kind of a Christian anthropology, but sin places the human being apart from God. And that the human condition is this consistent effort to return or get closer to God. And if Christian piety, as understood by Augustine, is this kind of mandate to always try to be better, but always failing at it, then these programs in Matteo, they all animate this kind of larger principle, uh, which I call Christian piety, that itself organizes gang prevention. I mean, like, me and myself, I don't have any confessional stakes in this game. Like, I, I, I'm not a uh, professing Christian. I grew up Catholic now. I'm not, etc. I, I don't, I'm not really committed to this. But what, what amazes me is that this multi-million, approaching multi-billion dollar gang prevention industry underlying it all is this kind of notion of it is this notion of Christian piety of we need we need to make these people better and it's going to be a failed effort but we need to keep on trying yeah this is a story mostly about men yes is there a female counterpart I wish I mean <laughs> you know I know I mean it's 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 this is a book about men and so this is for two reasons I mean one is because I mean I started this research how old was I? I don't know. How old I was like, I started this research for this project when I was like 27 or something like that. Uh, so look, I mean, just in terms of the actual, my access in terms of ethnography, um, uh, I had really good rapport with men. I was living in California at the time, at least based in California at the time, because um, these guys largely came from California, and we had a we had a good rapport. It was all. Right. The second is that the industry does does target men over and above women. Now, the only I think the child sponsorship program is the only one that cuts it fifty fifty and actually deals with with women. The prisons are overwhelmingly. Male. I think they're like four percent female. Uh, the rehabs of the two hundred that I know of, and kind of, in, I engage in with my study, although I focus only on three ethnographically. Only one of the two hundred that I know of are, are all female. Um, the so these programs uh, um, target men over and above uh, women by far. So that that's how it ends up being a book about men. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, 
what am it, I to do? It's not. I didn't mean it as a critique. I just observed. I just was observing it. No, it's a total critique. I mean, I critique. I'm like, why is this about men? You know, like after year three, why is this only about men? Year six, why? Um, but there was no legit. I mean, and anyway, I, I invite engagement about like how could this have been legitimately engaged with uh, with women equally? But I mean, I think I, I, I was in the middle of um, writing this essay about development and security and how. I, you know, if you paint in broad strokes, like development interventions in Guatemala are overwhelmingly about women. So especially, mm-hmm. especially like micro lending, this yeah. is, they ignore men. So, and in, and in the United States, at least in Canada, there's this really important, um, program about, uh, investing only in women or at least young, young women. And this, this, this is a certain logic, but security is dominated by the idea of, of, of the delinquent male. Yeah. Um, it makes a certain amount of sense. I guess. Yeah. And in that regard, I actually thought about Philippe Bourgeois and yeah. In Search of Respect when I read this book, not just because of the method, but also because of the ways both books are really attentive to themes like masculinity, dignity, right. respect, and work. And so I was wondering if your book is a kind of response to that book in any way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I Philippe's work is phenomenal. I mean, In Search of Respect was a pivotal moment for me in terms of reading it. It's a, it is an extraordinary piece. And his later work is of course excellent also. Um, yes. I mean, in terms of, is, is it, it's in, I draw a lot of inspiration from In Search of Respect and the idea of, of focusing in on particular characters and being concerned with, uh, my reader and the kind of response my reader, reader might have. Now the themes themselves are also really, Parallel, as you mentioned, with questions of masculinity. He has, an, in search of respect, he has an excellent chapter. I think it's called "Going Legit," where he talks about his main uh, informants trying to engage office culture. And you know, I couldn't help but return to that kind of material when I was uh, thinking through, for example, the call center industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of these interventions across the five chapters is this. I mean, to ask someone like. I mean, Matteo, who has an extensive uh, prison history in the United States and, uh, and his, is himself quite uh, proud and has a tremendous kind of street swagger, to ask him then is to kind of phone and to take, I mean, there's no other way to describe it, like take total shit from North American customers uh, is, is such a difficult thing to ask him. It's such a difficult thing for him to accomplish. Um, so in the same thing with the reality television show, I mean, to ask someone to give up their, their uh, gang culture inspired clothes for like a pink button down Oxford is a lot to ask. And so a lot of the Christian piety has, has a great deal to do with, with masculinity and about reforming masculinity. And um, largely because I think gang prevention as an industry is, is absolutely obsessed with the delinquent male and with these questions of masculinity. Is there an end to your story? Yeah, I mean, there is an end to the story. There, uh, the way the book ends. Yes, um, I mean, the way the book actually ends in the conclusion is that Matteo, who we've we've come to know through these interchapter moments as um, his life in the United States, within prison, his his. His troubled deportation, his his efforts to try to make a go of it in Guatemala City, as working for call centers or helping out with um, helping out with the child sponsorship program or finding himself in rehab. Um, he is trying to figure out what he's going to do next, and all of these kind of prevention programs have 
kind of allowed him to reach the age of 37, 38, which uh, is quite surprising to him and quite surprising to me. But at this kind of time in his life, when the book is ending, there's there's not an obvious next step. The, the prevention industry is not the development industry. The prevention industry is attracting people out of gangs, maybe give them a job. But in terms of what happens to deported gang members when they hit middle age, when they've kind of aged out entirely of these prevention industries, that they're not in prisons, so they can't be kind of connected with the prison chaplains, they don't necessarily belong in rehab. And as with Mateo, he kind of burned his bridges with the with the call centers. What what's next? And we find Mateo at the very end of the book in a pretty precarious position about wondering, well, what is next? And it's not obvious. And that's how I kind of end it. Right. And it's interesting that you make the point that that's actually the intended outcome in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the intended outcome in the sense of. Yeah, I mean, tell, tell me more. Tell me more how. how well, how... in the sense that he's he's he has come through all of these programs successfully, so he's not in them anymore. Yes. But there's no there's no other plan, and that that's sort of the end of the line for the in terms of engagement with the plans, right? Yeah, no, it is so, it is absolutely the the end of the end of the line. It's a interesting way to end, and and thought-provoking, really. It's, yeah, I mean, there's there's all, the you know, last chapter of City of God was called Disappointment. Now I've kind of gotten in this rut of, like, ending on a downer note. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, what, what what I wouldn't want to show is that, like, and now Mateo's middle class, and, and he, because that's, I mean, empirically not true. Right. But it's also uh, one of the kind of intended, the intentions of this Christian piety that structures the security apparatus is to distinguish between those who are worthy of help and those who aren't. And those who aren't really fall off the grid. And, and Guatemala City is a violent uh, city with one of the highest rates of homicide in the world. And and those people, over, over the years, I've seen increasingly bad decisions and end up increasingly bad situations and end up dying. Now, Mateo has proven himself to be a proper kind of at times subject of uh, intervention and prevention. And, has, and like I said, lit continued to live um, up until 37, 38, and onwards. He's, he's, a, he's still alive. Um, but the, yeah, that next step in terms of now what is not obvious. Uh, only a third of Guatemala works in the formal economy. And to be visually, a I mean, he's still very much visually a deported ex-gang member. And it's, it's in terms of, this is when we return to like Bourdieu, like his habitus, like his gait, his style of sitting, his accent. It's, he's, he can't, but be within the Guatemalan society categorized as deported, it's extremely hard to figure out what the next step is. So I've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, no. Maybe we can just close by telling us what your next step might be in terms of new research. Is two, I have two next steps So that I'm kind of trying to do right now. So uh, the first is that I'm continuing with the rehab research. So uh, chapter five. Chapter five looks at a kind of a, a quick view of this network of informal drug rehabilitation centers. Now, during that research, which I started many many years ago, uh, I came across um, a great deal of information about the first such rehabilitation center in all of Central America. So I'm writing a um, 
an, ethno, an ethnographic history of, of the center because it, it really has connections to all the other centers in the entire network. So I'm, I'm working through as kind of like the final moment of this larger question of religion and politics. I'm, I'm looking at the question of Christianity and drugs. So it's democracy, security, and drugs and, and so on. Um, the second book project is not nearly as advanced as the first, but I'm, I'm in the middle of it. And it's on clerical sex abuse. And what it looks at is you know, so much of the, the debates on, on sex abuse in the Catholic Church is nation-based in that you have the U.S. scandal, the scandal in India, the scandal in Canada. Uh, but in fact, there was a great deal of movement um, of predators across borders. And what I'm looking at is – uh, a pretty consistent pattern of North American predators uh, moving to Latin America, either moved by different dioceses or um, fl- move themselves to escape uh, prosecution. So I'm looking at a kind of the transnational history of clerical sex abuse, uh, focusing mostly on Latin America. So those are the two kind of major projects. I'm intrigued by both of those and will look forward to seeing more about them. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed our conversation. No, oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies. See you next time.